0: an article for the huffington post in 2015 called transforming business cultures from placency to contemporary and it was really about looking at business cultures as living systems in fact i've written multiple articles on that but that one was specifically about people-friendly change and of course what that means is that instead of thinking we're going to if we change the, the the tinker with the mechanics of the organization we can transform The way in which it functions. That's actually not how organizations work. It's not how people work. People drive performance. This is the Insight to Action podcast. I'm Donna Jones. And in this program, we're going to be talking to David Drake about narrative coaching, which is one of the people friendly ways to implement change in an organization. The poet Rainier Mariah Rilke, and I'm not sure if I've said that properly, said, Our deepest fears are like dragons guarding our deepest treasures. It's a quote I'm pulling straight out of David Drake's book called Narrative Coaching. So, David, let's just talk about this right away. Yes. What does our deepest fears are like dragons guarding our deepest treasures mean to leaders today in organizations, to management, to change agents?
1: Well, for me, it means that one of the sort of paradoxes of change is that you have to address the very things you're trying to avoid. People are often afraid of either confronting certain relationships or dynamics or cultural elements in the business, and those are, and they sort of end up doing window dressing around change that doesn't really get at the core of the issue. And the beauty of, uh, I think, of that quote is that by passing through that gate, you also get to a lot of the untapped energy in the organization itself. Because a lot of times what people have done is build these giant almost barricades around the gate because they want to protect this. But in reality, it's protecting them or saving them from actually tapping into the energy they could access to to really move forward. So it might be, for example, holding on to a grudge or a bad a bad piece of history in the company. And it keeps them from actually catharting through that space to finding out who would we become if we went back and uh, sort of rescued that energy we sort of lost by getting stuck in this old story about ourselves. So I find it's a very powerful quote, and a lot of what coaching does for individuals, teams, or or entire organizations is helping give them the courage and support to go to that gate, wrestle the dragon, and uh, sort of access the energy and the time and the resources they need to actually move forward.
0: Now, some people would think that we're here to sell coaching. That's, that's not the actual goal of, of the conversation. What, what I have observed and written about is that the organizational change fundamentally doesn't really happen unless you tap into the power of the human spirit. And given the, the disengagement statistics we've got globally, but, but very strongly in North America, there's plenty of room to engage the human spirit yeah. to really put more lasting change in. And the, interestingly enough, the kinds of, of ways you do that are not the kinds of ways most companies use. They, they're they more subtle yet powerful methods and methods. And, and in this case, narrative is one of them. Let's talk about what narrative is, because this is this makes it this whole conversation is critical for executive level management change agents at every single level. And then to you as a person, if you know, to anybody listening to you as a person, it, it's what stories am I hanging on to? And and there's more to it than that. But let's just, first of all, sort out what narrative means. Cause I've seen it used as, as rationalizing a, a, a reason to do something. It's just not even close to being a narrative. Help us with that.
1: So, I, I, so there's sort of, uh, there's a lot of uh, ways of defining both narrative and story. So I look at story as a, a particular episode or incident or, or piece that you're trying to use to describe something that's happened. Sometimes they can kind of become more sort of meta stories a bit in an organization or in our own lives. But in a narrative is sort of a, the structure and a story would be an example. So uh, archetypes or mythologies would be narrative structures in which you'd have a story about a certain type of boss or a certain type of, of situation. And narratives work really well for us because they're basically ways of structuring experience that provide a sense and meaning for people. And they tend to, at least in the West, have a chronological orientation. They have a sense of disruption in them because otherwise it would be no story or just be a chronology of what happened. A story is because something, what um, is often thought of as a breach in the commonplace, something happens that sends somebody on a a quest then to restore meaning and sense. And what they discover along the way helps them to resolve their issue or achieve what they're trying to achieve. And then they, in retrospect, they tell a story about what happened. So one of the difficulties in organizations is because people often don't take or are are not given enough time to reflect. It's really hard to narrate, let alone re-narrate their experience because they're always moving forward to the next quarter or the next set of results or the next 27 emails or meetings. And so it's this ongoing onslaught of that really makes that sort of circular return back to an experience. And so one can look at what is the story I unconsciously made about that? What is the narrative, larger narrative frame in which that sits and is that serving me or is that serving my team? And so just as a really concrete example, a lot of the things we do are helping people to reprocess difficult experiences they've had at work or that their culture keeps replicating with customers so they can actually go back and realize that the behavior at that time was based on a certain mindset, which was basically a narrative about how things are supposed to be and that the behavior and the results are logical extensions of that view of the world, that story about the world. And so if they want to get better results, they actually need to go back and say, we need to tell a different story or set ourselves in a different narrative about this if we're going to make something different happen.
0: So why are they so powerful? You've done a great job in your book of really outlining the, the whole theoretical framework. Why are stories and why are narratives so powerful, particularly for organizations that are seeking to move from the traditional framework over to one that's more contemporary?
1: Yeah, so so stories are deeply biological. They're they're deeply evolutionary in terms of our brains. Primary coordinates are time and space, which are the the coordinates in a story. The two there's different words for this, but the if you look at all the great metaphors and analogies and frames throughout history, there's two primary forces. We can think of them as agency and communion, or relatedness and, and action which is, again, how do I move in relation to other people and how do I move in terms of taking action? And so stories are just the way we naturally organize our lives, our thinking, it's how we connect to other people. And so if you get away from more polished story, like stories, like in marketing or branding, which is helpful in its own right, but if you look at stories in organizations, it's the natural way people make sense of things and how they make meaning of what's going on. And so one of the really powerful forces in uh, helping organizations change is what are the informal ways in which people are often unconsciously, maybe even non-verbally narrating what's going on. And oftentimes, particularly for leaders and managers, they've got sort of this sort of formal frame. I'm going to communicate this new branding message, or I'm going to communicate this new change imperative. And they don't think about, well, what's that like for the learner or for the recipient? What story are they making up about what you just told them? And again, that recursive sort of loop back into experience never happens. And then the manager gets really surprised. Why is nobody doing what I asked them to do? Why? Because they made up a different story about what you said. Or they have a very different story of interest about what they, what they think their career or their purpose is, and it's not yours. And so I think, you know, it, well, it's a bit of a, a fad, I suppose. The drive to understand the notion of purpose, I think, is huge and in terms of how to make that shift to a new economy. So, I, you know, my one of the ways I sort of try to simply frame this for people is I think that we have four human needs at work that are really about why most change fails and why organizations are struggling to make it into a new future. So people have a need to fundamentally to belong. They need to believe I'm a part of something that matters. They don't feel that they check out, right? They need to feel like they can believe in what's going on. So I have faith in where we're going. I believe in this, right? In my gut. They need to know how to behave. Like, what do you want? And and, uh, not only what do you want me to do, but am I making a meaningful contribution to this thing that I think matters? And and the reality is, for the vast majority of employees, I find they don't actually, in their heart, believe they're actually making a meaningful contribution. And it's what my former client used to call fake work. Um, (laughs) And then, so uh, belong, believe, behave, and become. So if I engage with this, it will improve my life and my future and things that are important to me, whether it's, you know, saving wildlife or, you know, bringing fiscal literacy to people, whatever it is that we're trying to do. So the frame I've started to move towards in this is from a narrative perspective, when you ask people what brings them joy in their life, whether it's gelato or their children or whatever it is, you don't have to incent them to be motivated or incent them to engage. They instinctively move towards the things that are meaningful to them. So I think, you know, sort of engagement strategies at work are not always very effective because they're taking intrinsic things and trying to place them on people as if they matter. And so I'm thinking about this idea of uh, creating cultures of contribution. Am I able to contribute my best self to work to things that matter And is the company contributing to me in a way that that's going to make that possible? And so it's putting accountability on both the employee, the managers and leaders and on the organization as a whole to reciprocally contribute to each other. We can no longer expect leaders and managers to carry the weight for the company. We can no longer keep, I believe putting more pressure on employees because most of them are already overwhelmed. And so it's like everybody's going to come together and say, okay, how do we contribute to each other's flourishing as individuals and as an entire organization? And so for me, that's really where I'm at right now is trying to help organizations align the different narratives they're involved in, in a way that would create these uh, different kinds of cultures.
0: Uh, now what you've touched on here is, is around the contribution, you know, people feeling they can contribute or, or waiting to be told what to do. That's changing. I mean, clearly if you're, you're in a traditional large company, you're being, you do wait to be told what to do because you've been trained to be passive. You've been trained to just be told and then you take it from there. But the way the new contemporary organization, to be truly engaged, you don't wait. You know, it's self-leadership, it's initiative, it's powering the change that you see and, and, and there, you have the freedom to do that. But there's an identity shift inside the management tier in particular where, where positional authority has been used as to assume leadership. It's all tangled up. What that means is that instead of having control over others, you've got to let go of control, and and that takes you to the deepest fears.
1: Yes, you bet. <laughs>
0: That's a direct yeah. path to those deepest fears. Tell us about uh, about that whole journey, whatever the search inside yourself that that goes with that shift in identity from being the manager's in charge, the problem solver, and in control, to being someone who's enabling and in, and an integrator instead.
1: Yeah. You know, obviously, there's a very famous program by that name, which is uh, an excellent program, and I have a number of colleagues who teach that program. But I know in my conversations with Google, what I was proposing to them, which they're still quite interested in, is this idea of searching outside yourself. And I think the challenge for a lot of these sort of mindfulness-based programs is that it does make you, done well, a better person. But I find that it's often either directly or indirectly intended to help people cope, but it doesn't really help them actually create or contribute at a new level. It just helps them cope better with the insanity of many organizations and the speed and the demands on people. And so for me, you know, I think if this idea about moving away from control, I think it's really a precarious proposition in a way because you're basically asking people to go against hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary history because control is something that we've, it's how we've survived as a species, in a way. And so I think it needs to be done quite thoughtfully. And for me, you know, I think what I'm... It's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a two-pronged thing, I think. I'm always after the third way, because I'm, I'm not really a big fan of binary distinctions. I don't find most of them very useful. And so I think about it sort of this third way of combining two things. So a lot of what enables anyone to feel confident without having to control is a sense of, a, of uh, authentic autonomy. You know, it's, you know, people like Viktor Frankl wrote about this in a very powerful way, about your freedom to choose at any moment in time within the bounds of what is possible. But this notion of I'm ath- authentically accountable and autonomous as I move through my life at home or at work, and nothing around me can take that away from me, I think that's a really powerful piece. But if people don't have that sense of agency and autonomy inside themselves, it's very difficult to let go of control. So I think that the whole mindset and personal development is is essential. But the other half of that is that autonomy is not just an individual activity, it's a relational activity. So there's this whole piece about relationship, about connectivity, uh, network, uh, intimacy, which is all about can I be autonomous and connected to you at the same time? Can I take care of myself and support your well-being at the same time? And that, again, requires the sense of strength within oneself to allow that extra discretionary energy in a way. But to continue to expand, how far can I push that out? I think one of the challenges for a lot of managers, because they often feel squeezed in the middle, where it's very hard to feel autonomous sometimes. You're being pushed by everybody from every direction. And it's very hard sometimes to feel connected because you're in this giant maze of, of, uh, of frenzy at work uh, sometimes. But I think that ability to remain connected, so really uh, con- control, uh, it, it, so in some ways you could say, it's, it's a bit tricky, but you could say, we're moving from a more masculine orientation in men and women to control our environment, to control what happens, to control our children, to control the poor, to one of connectivity, Connect, a better connection to the environment, a better connection to all ages, all races. Because the, the recognition is that it's what I call do-it-yourself together. So we, we need those, that independence to go make things happen, but we have to do that with other people. We can't just foist this on employees and say, well, just go figure it out. That's not fair and it's not doable for most people. So together we've got to go figure things out, which then requires a very different set of skills than one of command and control. And so I think there's, we're in this in-between time where we're trying to help people move to a, a, a different way of thinking that doesn't compromise their biological need for safety. And it just—it's safety is going to come from a different place. It's not going to come from controlling others or allowing ourselves to be controlled.
0: Why would any executive or manager confronted with this shift in identity step through that threshold and and make the decision to, to make a change?
1: One sort of almost cross level, because it's going to happen to them anyways. It's coming. They can't... I, I don't believe that they can avoid that. I mean, unless you're near retirement, I suppose. But even then, retirement's being radically redefined as well. So I, I think it's coming. It's happening all around them. And again... The, there's a giant dragon for most of us at the gates. It, it taps all kinds of primal fears. Like, what do I do when I'm out of control? The, the, the funny reality is that we were never in control of anything anyways.
0: Yeah, that's the beautiful, the beautiful illusion, right?
1: It's a beautiful, it's a very satisfying illusion. And it's very comforting at times. And so, you know, I think one of the gifts of some of the hardships that are coming to the world right now is it's really waking us up that that was an illusion all along. And so, for me, the gift—or why would anybody want to do this? Because—and this is the part going back to your Wilkay quote—there's extraordinary gifts when one is freed from the illusion of control, and you can actually accomplish so much more. And I, you know, every now and then, when I'm going to different events or speaking at events where there's a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs who don't know any better, <laughs> and which is great—it's brilliant. Then he said, "Well, I don't know that I can't do that, so I'm gonna just go make that up and, and do that." And I think, yeah, that's part of that's the 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 joy of youth. But I think it's it's coming to more and more people where the boundaries. So, like, it's a bit off topic, I suppose. But you think of something like David Bowie, who even architected his own death in a way to be fabulous. The freedom to just go create what you need to create and not wait for somebody to say, well, here's 10 forms you have to fill out first or here's three workshops you have to take or a certification you're going to need. It's just going and getting it done.
0: And I think the other part of it, too, is given the impact of climate change and some of these larger issues we're facing with the migration of of refugees, there's no rules. We're not working with rules. So there's a certain, I mean, what I appreciate about the, the, the youth in the communities I circle in, is, is quite simply that, is that creativity, but it's also experimentation. We don't have to be perfect at this. We're not perfect. We're human. So what we're doing is we're just really testing out ways that will work in this context. We're in new territory.
1: Yeah, you bet, in a, in a huge way. And so I think, you know, people are going to fall out across a bell curve about their willingness to engage that bit. And just I think there's a lot of heartening things, too. I mean, I was reading the other day about the you know, the Finnish government is now embarking on this huge experiment of, of, of reinventing itself through basically design thinking. And they're putting all of their approaches to social service and, and uh, governance, basically, out to the test. So they're going to create a series of experiments. They're going to do research on the experiments. They're going to have panels of experts and community members. And they say, well, we need to have scale up this whole design idea about what it means to be an entire government and to be a, to be a country. And I think, well, how brilliant is that? And so I I just think every in-between time in history, you know, is sort of fraught with dangers and difficulties. And and there's just a lot of stuff to be figured out that will be harmful to people, I suppose, in, in part. But it's just the nature of moving to a new way of thinking about being in organizations. And I find that for me... One of I think the biggest surprises for a lot of the managers I work with is that they often feel alone, like nobody else thinks what I think. But my experience is that a lot of a lot of managers and leaders are actually more aware of these things than they are willing to admit at times, and because they don't know quite know what to do, because so they've got to operate this machine to keep it going with all the pressures and the opportunities that present. While at the same time, everything around them is deconstructing.
0: And they're aware of it at some level.
1: And so, even if it's just tasks that are somatic, which is, is they haven't found language. But, and so, again, I find that's where that story can be really helpful. So, where, so I, 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 recently, I helped the CEO of a very large bank communicate the new vision for the bank to uh, their 400 top leaders and change agents, then out to all their tens of thousands of employees. But the first thing I did for them, I said, you, you do realize how radical your vision really is. They go, not we don't think so. And I said, well, let's unpack the word you chose. And and then they go, oh, my God, if we actually did this. I said, yes, if you actually did this, it would not only continue your front-running status in your region for your bank, you would change the face of banking forever globally. And that got them really excited. And then they said, but how are we going to communicate this to people? Gonna, you're going to tell them the story about what this vision actually means. And so we helped them line up my, my personal story about my life, my story as the leader, the story of the history of our bank, the story of the bank we want to become, the story of our customers and who they're going to be now, and what they're going to do that they couldn't do before because we're, our bank wants to move. The story of banking, you know, so, so can we line up all those and say, let's move them all up to a new tier, you know, and let's step up our transparency as leaders. Let's step up our courage to declare our vision as a bank that step up what's possible for our customers. And so you're basically elevating this sort of shared narrative now so that when they try to communicate that to their customers, they're not communicating to their customers as they saw them before. They're communicating to them as their customers as they see them now and inviting them to say, this is what could become possible for you if you join us on this journey to figure out how to do something new and different with banking.
0: Brilliant. And, and uh, to especially to having an example in the financial sector, which is one sector that, that is primed for disruption in, in yes. so many ways. So, yes. Let's talk a bit about the relationship between narrative and instilling a growth mindset because most companies are repeating themselves or going running around in circles, working off what's happened in the past. We can't do that. We're in a state where we are designing the future. And in order to do that, you've got to let go of that past and hit growth. What, what's the connection between narrative and or story and uh, a growth mindset
1: some years ago i had opportunity to do a large-scale coaching skills for managers program in a company and i discovered in my sort of preparation that they'd had three other efforts at this in the years past with giant binders that really accomplished nothing and they'd spent millions on this and it never really achieved any real results and so i said well we're not going to do that again because we've proven that doesn't really work And so one of the things that we did with them, which is now the basis for my next book, is we said, and from a very sort of going back to your comment about the human spirit, I said, most of us are so busy living our lives or doing our jobs, we don't really know the stories we're telling ourselves. And when we do become aware of some of them, there's often judgments about them, either by us or from us or about us. And so this makes us close down and the gates get more guarded and the dragons get bigger and... The first workshop we did where people came in expecting the usual thing, we basically taught them some mindfulness, some things about growth mindset, some things about ethnography, and then sent them on their way to observe themselves and their teams in action relative to some things that were important for the organization. And then which was a big gamble. It was a big gamble by the organization and, and in me and in me that my 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 work would actually work for them. Well, they came back and they were just already transformed even though we hadn't taught them anything. They said, oh, my God, I, di- I didn't realize this is what we actually did and this is how we actually talk to each other and this- these are the forms we have to use to have, uh, you know, uh, performance reviews. And they just realized all the things that were contributing to them not having a coaching culture. And so then the question became, so what would you need to do differently to make this happen? Oh, well, then they had like, just tons of ideas. And so we basically use that, first, that next workshop to construct a program based on what they, what they wanted. And so for me, helping people be aware of what they do now as opposed to what they think they do now or they should do now or could have done now or used to do now, but what do they actually do? That self-awareness, I think, is, is just so critical. And then the growth mindset comes in because then to allow people to sit with the story that they've told themselves about this is what I'm supposed to do as a manager, or this is what our company's about, or those, if you just sort of soften your grip on those and say, okay, what's really true about that? What's not? What do I really do? Um, often takes people into this space where they have to admit that what some of what they do doesn't work, and that's okay. And that's some of what they're going to do to make it different is going to fail, and that's okay. And so it's I find that most in people at work have almost no life experience operating from a growth mindset. And so you think about most of us in schools, most of us in churches and synagogues and others, uh, most of us in our families. It's, just, it's a really novel experience for people. And so we find in a lot of our programs, we're actually, our best gift to most people is to help them with two, two things. To love themselves, which is novel for many people, frankly, even ones that they have high, high egos. And to learn how to learn. And so for me, once people's innate curiosity is rekindled, we, we sort of relight the pilot, you know, in the furnace, then, then the rest of coaching becomes quite easy for them. Because they now see the world like, oh, we're here to learn something. So how can I help you learn about what's going on for you and your job? And how can I help you uh, work address that in some fashion? And so I find that I think one of the beauties of a narrative approach, because it's so deeply human, is that it uncomplicates a lot of these things and just invites people to have a human-to-human conversation about something that matters. There's an activity I use to start my workshops that demonstrates this in 10 minutes. I've, I've done this to thousands of people around the world. No one's ever not been able to do this. We're hardwired to know how to do this, have these kind of conversations. We've just forgotten, or we've, we've come to a belief or a, a story that We can't do this, or it's too hard, or it's not business-like enough. I said, but that's what people are craving at work, the ability to have real conversations about things that really matter.
0: David, where can people find out more about your book and your programs?
1: Um, So my website's at uh, uh, narrativecoaching.com. It's all one word, narrative coaching, and it has uh, information there about programs both for practitioners. We've trained about... 10,000 folks in this work around the world. And then we also are organizational projects.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for being on the program.
1: Thank you, Donna. I appreciate it very much.
0: Points that David made in this interview that are really relevant today, even more so than even last week, things are moving quite quickly. So I hope you've uh, got some insight into what I'm talking about when I talk about people-friendly change, because it is very much centered on humans and humanity and restoring the human spirit in the workplace. My work, as you know, is about leadership. It's about decision-making and complexity, and really it's about tapping into the inner set of skills. So these are out, not outside tools and fixes, you know, quick pills that you take. This is about the intrinsic the journey as a leader to step forward, and David's touched on that quite eloquently in these conversations. You can find me at FromInsightToAction.com. I blog for The Huffington Post, Great Workplace Cultures, I have a chapter in Urban Laszlo's upcoming book called The Intelligence of the Cosmos on the New Purpose of Business. That'll be out in October of 2017. Please share or comment on the podcast if you appreciated and enjoyed this episode. More like that coming and more like that already on the program. Thanks for joining me.